Hello, and welcome to PrimeMed's podcast on GLP-1 receptor agonists. We welcome Dr. Richard Prattley. Dr. Prattley is a senior investigator and diabetes program lead at the Advent Health Translational Research Institute and a medical director at the Advent Health Diabetes Institute. The learning objectives of this podcast are 1. Distinguish among the available GLP-1 RAs based on mode of administration, duration of action, and renal dosing. 2. Apply data on cardiovascular risk reduction demonstrated by individual GLP-1 RAs into practice. And 3. Evaluate the appropriate use of GLP-1 RAs in special populations. Before we get started, let me remind everyone that this podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Novo Nordisk Incorporated. For more information, please visit the activity page for this podcast on www.primed.com. Hi, my name is Dr. Richard Prattley. I'm the Samuel E. Crockett Chair in Diabetes Research and Medical Director at the Advent Health Diabetes Institute. I'm also Senior Investigator and Diabetes Program Lead at the Advent Health Translational Research Institute in Orlando, Florida. I'm really delighted to talk to you uh, about the use of GLP-1 receptor agonists for the reduction of CV risk in patients with type 2 diabetes. In response to a recent program we conducted on this topic, we got some really great questions. So for the next few minutes, I'd like to address these questions. For clarity, I've broken down these questions into three buckets. First, the use of GLP-1 receptor agonists to reduce cardiovascular disease risk. Second, general questions about the use of GLP-1 receptor agonists. And third, questions about the use of GLP-1 receptor agonists in special populations. So let's turn now to questions about using GLP-1 receptor agonists to address CV risk. The first question is, if you see a new patient with diabetes, with cardiovascular disease, or high cardiovascular disease risk, should a GLP-1 receptor agonist be initiated or considered at the same time as initiation of metformin? What a great question, because this happens in our clinic uh, with some frequency. And I think the answer should be yes. Remember, our goals for patients with diabetes and cardiovascular disease are not just controlling glucose levels, but managing the cardiovascular disease risk. So the combination of GLP-1 receptor agonists and metformin uh, is an excellent combination. It's been proven in many clinical trials, and there's no risk to hypoglycemia by concomitant use. So I think it would be safe to initiate the two medications uh, at or about the same time uh, when you have a new patient with cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. The second patient question is similar. In a patient with uh, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk or atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease who's well controlled on metformin alone, should a GLP-1 receptor agonist be started anyway? And the answer to this question is clearly yes. You want the added benefit of the GLP-1 receptor agonist to reduce cardiovascular disease. And the combination, even in patients who are well controlled with an A1C uh, in the low seven or even the six and a half range, uh, should be safe with a low risk of hypoglycemia or other complications. The third question is also an interesting question. Is there still a CV benefit and glycemic control benefit using a GLP-1 receptor agonist at less than the recommended dosage? 
So this is an interesting question because some of our patients can't achieve the maximal GLP-1 receptor agonist dose because of tolerability issues. So there are patients who are on lower than the maximum dosage. In the clinical trials, for the most part, patients achieved the maximal GLP-1 receptor agonist dose. So we don't have a lot of information about lower doses. However, there were some trials which used two doses of a GLP-1 receptor agonist, a lower dose and a higher dose, and even those on the lower dose seem to benefit from the uh, GLP-1 receptor uh, use in terms of reducing cardiovascular disease. So I would say that there still is benefit uh, for using a GLP-1 receptor agonist at less than the recommended dosage. The third question, the fourth question is, can you use an SGLT2 together with a GLP-1 receptor agonist in a patient with diabetes and CVD risk? The answer to this is yes. Uh, the two classes of medications have been shown to have an additive effect on glycemic control, an additive effect on weight loss, and in terms of the cardiovascular disease risk reduction, there are no studies that indicate whether or not these drugs are working through a similar mechanism or through different mechanisms. We actually think they're working through different mechanisms and might have an additive effect on cardiovascular disease risk. But so far, there are no trials that are planned to test that hypothesis. But since there are a few downsides uh, to using these two medications together, and we use them together in many clinical circumstances, I think it's safe to use an SGLT2 with a GLP-1 receptor agonist in patients with diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So now I'd like to move on to general questions about the use and initiation of GLP-1 receptor agonists. The first question is, can a GLP-1 receptor agonist be used as first line when you can't use metformin because of a high creatinine or the patient is not a good candidate or doesn't want to sulfonylurea? The answer is yes. These drugs have all been studied as monotherapy. They're effective in patients with early diabetes, and they are approved for use uh, when metformin uh, can't be used as the first-line therapy. They're effective at lowering A1C and weight in these patients, and as we've already seen, they are recommended for reducing cardiovascular disease risk in patients with type 2 diabetes and prior cardiovascular disease or high risk. The second question is a great question. Can GLP-1 receptor agonists be used with insulin, and in what circumstances? All of the GLP-1 receptor agonists have been studied in combination with insulin. Typically, the GLP-1 receptor agonists are added on to patients who are on basal insulin to intensify therapy to get patients to go. In these circumstances, the GLP-1 receptor agonists are associated with some weight loss, improvement in glycemic control, and oftentimes a reduction in insulin dose. This is uh, important because if patients are particularly close to their glycemic targets, it might be useful to reduce the dose of uh, insulin by 10 to 20% or so when starting a GLP-1 receptor agonist. This will help to avoid hypoglycemia. Now the question about GLP-1 receptor agonists uh, and insulin use in patients with cardiovascular disease is an interesting one. It turns out in the cardiovascular disease outcome studies, there were a large number of patients who were already on background insulin therapy, and they seemed to do just as well as the other patient populations when initiated on a GLP-1 receptor agonist. So the answer to whether or not the GLP-1 receptor agonist can be used with insulin is a resounding yes. The next question is a good question too. On average, 
how much does GLP-1 receptor agonists decrease A1C? The answer is, it depends. It depends a little bit on what the starting A1C is. As with all diabetes drugs, the higher the A1C, the larger the A1C reduction you're likely to see with a GLP-1 receptor agonist. And if we have patients whose A1C is in the 9 range, it's not unusual to see A1C reductions of more than 2 percentage points. Now, it also depends on which GLP-1 receptor agonist you're talking about. In head-to-head -head trials, uh, there are some differences in the glycemic efficacy of the GLP-1 receptor agonists, with some GLP-1 receptor agonists, such as semaglutide, being better than others, such as exenatide, uh, once weekly, uh, or dulaglutide. So uh, it depends not only on where the patient starts in terms of their A1C, but also in terms of the GLP-1 receptor agonist you choose. As a ballpark, it's not unusual to see an A1C reduction uh, of one to one and a half percentage points with the GLP-1 receptor agonists. The next question is a very practical question. How do you reduce nausea other than eating smaller meals? So nausea happens in around 10 to 20% of patients uh, who initiate a GLP-1 receptor agonist. And nausea is associated with both initiation and titration of the GLP-1 receptor agonists. We can uh, reduce nausea by slowing the rate of titration, uh, starting with lower doses, which is the recommended approach to initiating GLP-1 receptor agonists, and then having patients uh, adjust their eating habits, including eating smaller meals and less dense, uh, high-fat meals. Uh, and in most cases, patients are able to come, overcome those episodes of nausea and stay on the GLP-1 receptor agonists. If patients aren't able to overcome the nausea, then I typically go to a lower dose of the GLP-1 receptor agonist and see if they tolerate a lower yet efficacious dose. Here's a good question about uh, deciding whether or not to use a GLP-1 receptor agonist. Do you need to test any other blood test before starting a GLP-1 receptor agonist besides the A1C, for example, a C-peptide? The answer to this question is no. Uh, there have been studies, and it turns out it doesn't matter so much what your C-peptide is. The GLP-1 receptor agonists work well across the spectrum of diabetes, even in patients with uh, long diabetes duration who tend to have lower C-peptide levels. The final question in this general category is, is there anything unique we need to know about the use of the oral GLP-1 receptor agonist versus the injectables? Well, the oral GLP-1 receptor agonists are, uh, are an absolutely innovative uh, approach to GLP-1 receptor uh, agonist therapy because it's the first time we've been able to use a peptide therapy as an oral medication. Because of this, there are some things that are unique. First of all, the oral GLP-1 receptor agonist is daily versus the uh, weekly uh, injectable form. Second, because it depends upon absorption of the oral GLP-1 across the gastric mucosa, it's important that patients take the medication first thing in the morning and wait 30 minutes before taking any food. The medication should be taken with about 120 milliliters uh, of water and no other medications. This assures the optimal absorption of the oral GLP-1 receptor agonist, and uh, it also ensures uh, the most optimal levels. However, when people are taking the oral GLP-1 receptor agonist, have, take, have achieved 
uh, stable plasma levels, then the side effects and the efficacy are quite similar to the injectable form. So we do see nausea as a side effect of the oral GLP-1 receptor agonists, quite similar to that seen with the injectable uh, form. But we see excellent A1C lowering, and we also see similar weight loss with the oral GLP-1 receptor agonist. I'd like to move on now in the last few minutes to a set of questions about the use of GLP-1 receptor agonists in special patient populations. The first question is, if a patient is morbidly obese, do you need to start them on a higher dose of a GLP-1 receptor agonist? The short answer is no. I would start them on the usual dose of the GLP-1 receptor agonist and then titrate according to the label. What is true is that patients who are leaner tend to have a few more adverse events related to nausea than do obese individuals. And this probably has to do with the volume of distribution of the GLP-1 receptor agonist. So it is possible that patients who are morbidly obese might tolerate a faster titration scheme, and they might be able to tolerate higher levels of the GLP-1 receptor agonist eventually. But in order to ensure that they don't have undue uh, nausea that would uh, prevent them from taking the GLP-1 receptor agonist, I still recommend following the titration regimen. The next question is one that comes up frequently. Is there ever a role for the use of a GLP-1 receptor agonist in patients with type 1 diabetes or an insulin-dependent uh, patient with diabetes? So these are two different types of patients. Patients with type 1 diabetes, of course, have a different disease process than type 2 diabetes. They have an absolute deficiency in insulin, require insulin to prevent ketoacidosis, hyperglycemia, and even death. GLP-1 receptor agonists have been studied in patients with type 2 diabetes. They do improve glycemic control somewhat, and they also result in some weight loss that is on the order of the weight loss seen in patients with type 2 diabetes. However, there have also been observed some adverse events in patients with type 1 uh, diabetes, including more hypoglycemia and more uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. So at the moment, GLP-1 receptor agonists are not approved for the use in patients with type 1 diabetes. Any use would be off-label. Now, in terms of patients with type 2 diabetes who are on insulin, we've already discussed that GLP-1 receptor agonists have been studied extensively in patients uh, with, uh, on basal insulin and even in patients who are on uh, prandial insulin. So there's no contraindication if a patient has a long history of type 2 diabetes and now requires insulin to initiating a GLP-1 receptor agonist. Remember that the combination could result in hypoglycemia, so you might be well advised decrease the dose of the insulin by 10 to 20% or so when initiating the GLP-1 receptor agonist. Follow the glucose levels and the A1C after that, and you may be able to titrate the insulin down even more. Here's a question uh, among patients that doesn't come up very often, but is an important question. We know that the GLP-1 receptor agonists are associated with uh, delayed gastric emptying. So if we have a patient with delayed gastric emptying, would adding a GLP-1 receptor agonist make it worse? And the answer is, this has never really been studied very well, but conceivably it could. Uh, this would have to be done very carefully uh, and would ha you'd have to pay a lot of attention to the symptoms of nausea. Uh, and also, uh, you'd have to pay attention to what this does to their glycemic control. I would recommend doing this only in patients who are on continuous glucose monitoring. 
The next question is a good question. Is a patient with low weight a contraindication to using a GLP-1 receptor agonist? The answer is no. Across the clinical trials, there have been many patients with a BMI less than 25, and it turns out that they do just fine in terms of the glucose lowering effect. They have the same proportionate weight loss, but not quantitatively as much weight loss. So they may still lose on the order of three to 5% of their body weight, but this may only be one to two kilograms versus the uh, six kilograms or so you see with a larger individual. There's no contraindication to starting a patient uh, who is lean uh, with cardiovascular disease on a GLP-1 receptor agonist, however. And then the final question I wanna cover is uh, a really good question as well. For patients with double-digit A1C levels without any signs of ketoacidosis, how do you decide whether to start insulin versus treating with a GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLT2 inhibitor or other medications? I would first look at see and see whether or not the patient has uh, signs of catabolism. Have they lost a lot of weight? Uh, have Are they... Uh, uh, polyuric, uh, are they uh, polydipsic, uh, are they fatigued? If patients have symptoms, uh, then it's usually a good idea to initiate insulin therapy from the get-go. And I'd probably do that in combination with metformin and possibly an SGLT2 inhibitor uh, from the, the uh, very beginning. You could also start with a GLP-1 receptor agonist in combination with insulin. And there are fixed ratio combinations of insulin and GLP-1 receptor agonists that would be very effective in this patient population. Well, I hope you have appreciated uh, that there are still a lot of questions about the use of GLP-1 receptor agonists, both in patients with diabetes and cardiovascular disease and more generally. I hope we've been able to address some of these questions uh, on this podcast, and I do encourage you to continue to send in your questions. Thank you very much for your attention. To obtain your CME credit, please visit primed.com and complete a short post assessment. If you listen to this podcast on another platform, please refer to the episode description, where there is a direct link on the activity page on primed.com for claiming CME credit.